Welcome to Historic Knoxville News, a podcast series based on readings from old Knoxville newspapers and other documents. I'm Melissa Brenneman, Robbie Griffith is the reader, and Knox County historian Steve Cotton is our interpretive guide. In this episode, a journalist records his impressions of a three-day reunion between Confederate and Union soldiers at Fort Sanders, nearly 30 years after the battle. Veterans, the old soldiers are here. The Knoxville Journal, October 8, 1890. The day yesterday morning opened with a drizzling rain and dull leaden skies. The first day of reunion was destined to be a gloomy one, as gloomy at least as weather could make it. The trains from every direction came in during the day crowded with human freight. There were several thousands on the trains and many others came in from the country by private conveyances. Knoxville was pretty full yesterday and last night, and we expect the East Tennessee boys will be here today, just as many of them as the railroad trains will bring in. Early in the afternoon, the veterans started to see where they fought and suffered and bled and buried their comrades 27 years ago. These scenes had for them an interest that can be fully appreciated only by themselves and by those who have been similarly situated. The sight of these grounds awakens memories of the past, and the stirring scenes of a trying period are brought out most vividly. What a wonderful thing this is that we call memory anyway. The music of the bands was very much enjoyed by the large crowds on the streets. Now the lively strains of Dixie were heard, and the boys who wore the gray would smile and pick up their ears. Then the equally widely known marching through Georgia would come next, and the boys who wore the blue would have the smile. The best of humor prevailed, and notwithstanding, some of the vets had been to the canteen once too often, unpleasant words spoken were so rare as to be unworthy of mention. Of course, when brought in contact on an occasion like this, both sides feel somewhat restrained, perhaps, as both sides are careful not only to be civil, but pleasant. The utmost good feeling prevails, and we are sure that nothing has occurred or will occur to mar the good feeling which has thus far characterized the occasion. The city is crowded with guests from all parts of the country. They represent the New England states, Dakota and the Northwest, Texas and the Southwest, Florida and the Southeast. They are for the most part men who have passed through many a hard-fought battle of the late war. They represent every class from the capitalist to the day laborer. A portion of them served in the bloody battle of Fort Sanders, and it is to them that the present reunion in Knoxville is of greatest interest. Interest not only because the Union soldiers stationed on the interior of the fort can meet his Confederate friend who fought on the outside, but because Union and Confederate can join hands, go to the spot, and look over the ground where 27 years ago such a bloody scene was enacted. In the morning, as soon as the weather would permit, the delegation of the 79th Highlanders drew up in line and marched in a body to the fort. They spent several hours in surveying the scene and fixing old landmarks in their minds, which stood near the fort so many years ago. After picking up objects which would make suitable relics to take with them to their faraway homes, the Highlanders departed to the National Cemetery, where they decorated all the graves of their dead comrades which could be found. To the west of the fort stands the large tents, in which today noted speakers will orate over the very historical ground on which the main charge of General Longstreet's force was made. Between the large tent and the old ditch running along outside the fort stand numerous small tents used by the military companies as quarters. 
Yesterday afternoon, a reporter visited the place and found the old fort covered with sightseers and men who had worn the blue and gray at the very spot. Large groups of men stood here and there. Some Union soldier was telling his Confederate comrade how his comrades fell on the inside of the fort. Mr. C. M. Gosson, a member of the 24 USA Benjamin's Battery, was probably as enthusiastic a talker as anyone present. He depicted with feeling the scene of the battle from beginning to end, how Longstreet's men but a few days before the charge trapped two Michigan regiments in utter destruction, and then how General Burnside returned the compliment to the Confederate general at the attack. The fort was so constructed that none of the guns seemingly could bear upon men charging the northwest corner of the fort. Longstreet noticed the fact and certainly was trapped. He directed his men to charge that corner, and no sooner had he done that than temporary embankments were removed and the guns brought to bear directly upon the spot. To the reporter, Mr. Gosson said, I am like the last rose of summer. For the past five years I have corresponded with Benjamin, the commander of my battery, to see if we couldn't find one man who took part in Fort Sanders in the battery, but was unsuccessful, and now that Benjamin is dead, I am alone. Why Benjamin stood there, pointing to a row, during the entire charge, and after those brave Confederates had been caught in the wires and had fallen in the ditch, he ordered one of his men, Hurst by name, to hand him up twenty-pound shells with five-second fuses. He stood there, as I said before, calmly smoking a cigar, touching the light to the fuses, and throwing those shells over the side. I saw those unfortunates in that ditch endeavor to catch them and hurl them back. A number of little instances were picked up here and there. One gentleman who was in the fight said, After the Confederates had put up their flag of truce, I jumped up on the wall of the fort. There below me, several feet in the ditch, was an Irishman who wore the gray, slowly pulling himself along to a burning object. With great effort, he reached it, and with a struggle, lighted his pipe. His life went out in that smoke, for before I got to him, he was dead. The poor fellow had been shot through and through, both arms and legs terribly shattered, but like most all Irishmen, he loved his smoke. Another gentleman in the little assembly spoke up and said that the sight which moved him the most occurred just beyond the deep ditch. It was the day after this assault, said he, and we felt quite at peace. Two little boys from the vicinity came around the fort and boy-like were picking up and examining every article they came across. One of the youngsters accidentally found an old bomb which lay outside the fort. Thoughtlessly, unnoticed by us, they began pounding it with might and main upon a rock. The bomb exploded. One of the boys was torn literally to shreds. The other had both his legs blown off. I tell you, strangers, it was the hardest sight I ever saw or ever want to see. Anecdotes that would fill columns were heard by the reporter. A tall confederate said that he had the misfortune to fall into the ditch and was there when the grape and canister were being poured into the trench. There stood the gun, said he, pointing to the southwest corner of the fort, that did the work. Its fire swept the trench until the dead bodies lay twelve and even thirteen deep in it. Benjamin was a great shot, said an ex-Unionist. I well remember the day when General Burnside called for a man who could hit the Armstrong house away out there to the west. Benjamin undertook the task. Aiming the gun, the first shot went true to the mark, and a large hole was visible. General Burnside was crazed with glee. Jumping up and down and clapping his hands, he at last patted Benjamin on the back and ordered the whiskey for the crowd. 
The Armstrong house was filled with Confederate pickets, but that shot dislodged them. All the veterans who visited this historical spot yesterday expressed the wish that it might be preserved, and so it should. Every preparation is now going on at the fort. Workmen are putting up poles and stringing electric wires to lamps stationed in different portions of the grounds. Stands are being erected. A block away, the amphitheater to be used Thursday night at the fireman's display is being put up. Everything will be in readiness at that end of the line for the exercises today. Tramping, the Knoxville Journal, October 9, 1890. Sergeant Pennywit of the Signal Service said Tuesday that we would have good weather yesterday, and he was right, as he generally is. In the early morning, the sun was somewhat obscured for a short time, but old Saul was not slow in asserting himself, and by nine o'clock the mists had cleared away, and the day was all that could have been desired. And the people came. Every train was crowded to its largest capacity, and with a large number of extra cars attached to each train. As early as eight o'clock yesterday morning, the principal streets of the city were lined with visitors. They wandered back and forth, admiring the exquisite decorations of the business houses, and complimenting Knoxville upon the manner in which she is entertaining her thousands of guests. It was the day of the procession, and each and every one was out to see it. Every guest expected something nice, and their wishes were gratified. At 11 o'clock, the procession began its march from Broad Street. It, although a large one, did not comprise scarcely one-tenth of the veterans who are in the city. It was received with delight by thousands who lined the streets. First came Chief Atkins, Lieutenants Reeder and Hood of the police force, and four mounted policemen, followed by nine patrolmen on foot. Following them came the Knoxville Band, composed of 24 members, Colonel W.L. Ledgerwood and staff, numbering nine men, Davy Crockett Division, Knights of Pythias, 50 strong, and Hacker Division, number three, same order of Chattanooga, 40 strong. General Hood and staff, followed by Drum Corps and Knoxville Rifles, 25 strong, and by Middlesbrough Military Company, 20 strong. Fifteen carriages bearing the speakers of the day, General Longstreet, General Gibson, J.W. Caldwell, Colonel W.A. Henderson, Mayor Kern, members of the city council, etc., followed by next in line. West Knoxville Band of 13 pieces, schoolboys under supervision of Professor W.T. White, 170 strong, Louisville Band, 12 pieces, General Cooper, Commander Harris, and Colonel Gage, 79th Highlanders, 32 strong. Sons of veterans, local and visiting, under command of Mr. Cooper, 175 strong. Franklin, Indiana Band, 19 pieces. Fred Alt Bivouac, followed by ex-Confederates, 425 strong. As the grand procession moved by different points on the line of march, they were greeted with cheer after cheer. The bands played old war tunes, such as would bring back to mind reminiscences of events of nearly 30 years ago. Through streets lined with business houses and residences heavily decorated on either side, they marched and at no spot was enthusiasm slack. The 79th New York Highlanders were the heroes of the day. Hardly a step was taken by them in which they were not cheered lustily by the 30,000 people who lined the sidewalks. Men who for the most part fought at Fort Sanders were all the more to be remembered for their acts of bravery, for which we today are indebted. Scotch caps and uniforms of neat description served for the recognition 
But had the brave fellows come in rags and tatters, the ovation would have been the same. The small detachment quartered in Fort Sanders during that historical battle were sufficient to show the metal of their regiment the 79th of New York was made up of. Men who would stand firm their ground. Men who would cheerfully die for the preservation of the Union. The old veterans, both Union and Confederate, although they paid no great attention to their appearance, still presented a grand sight. On their very faces were pictured the joy that each one felt at being able to attend a reunion at a city in which such a grand relic of the war as Fort Sanders still remained, the place where many of the marchers fought in the cause which they deemed right, the place where veterans were exultant over victory or sorrowed by utter defeat, the place of today where all might meet as brothers and talk over the occurrence of so many years ago. There was not one who did not feel it an honor to do homage to such an occasion. Regiment after regiment was represented. Here and there could be seen the remnants of battle flags, the emblem which many brave men had followed during the war. The flag, riddled with bullets, torn to shreds, still remains as a memento. How the old flags were cheered. They bring to mind something inexpressible as their torn folds catch the breezes. They recall the noble lives of many a poor private who has tried to plant the emblem of his regiment on the enemy's stronghold. They recall the fields on which that flag was carried to victory. And they recall, though fain their followers forget it, the fields on which it was trailed in the dust. As the crowds on the pavements would cheer, the old veterans would catch up the strain and find themselves cheering as lustily as did their admirers. There is something noble, grand, and soul-inspiring about such a procession. People see the Union and Confederate soldiers united in heart and spirit as well as hand. They see men who would today march side by side in battle for a cause just and right. They see men who, if called upon, would form the grandest army ever put in the field by any country on the face of the earth. The procession marched from Broad Street to Gay, down Gay to Maine, on Maine to Prince, from Prince to Clinch, and then direct to Fort Sanders. Arriving at the fort, the militia drew up in line of dress parade, while the remainder of the procession passed into the tent. At the fort, veterans could be seen all about, talking about how the battle was lost or won, how each gun was placed, and suggesting means by which the battle could have been won. The procession was followed to the fort by thousands of people. There were not near enough conveyances to transport the people to that spot of most interest, but from the crowd present there, it would seem that a fit delegation had at least found passage. The Last Day, the Knoxville Journal, October 9, 1890. Thursday is gone. The reunion is over, and Knoxville may now take unto herself a well-earned rest. She may rest, too, with a clear conscience of having done her whole duty. For three days our streets have been thronged with old soldiers and the new generation. Sights have been seen that we are not likely to see again, nor could they have been witnessed in any other country than this. The spectacle is a new one to history. Representatives of two warring armies, meeting, fraternizing, pointing with soldier pride to the same flag, the beautiful banner of the United States. We have had the speech of the senior living Confederate general, calmly addressing soldiers of both armies, glorying in the valor of his own men and of his one-time enemies. We have seen old warriors with gray heads and bent shoulders fall upon the form of some brother warrior, 
long time unseen, while tears of joy trickled down honest, brave cheeks. We have seen men cheer and weep and get young again as some old tattered battle flag went by. We have seen empty sleeves that wore badges of honor more than cross or crown or decoration. We have seen crutches hobbling by and hats raised to the owners thereof in deference to proof of soldiery, endurance, and bravery. It is well if the men who fought each other for four long years over thousands of miles of territory through summer's heat and winter's cold can thus meet and shake hands and forgive, what effect must it have on the generation that has come up since the war? These three days have been worth ten years of ordinary life in clearing away sectional feelings to those who have witnessed them. There is not a northern man who was here who will not go back to his home the other side of the line with a friendlier feeling towards the south. There is not a southern man here who has not a more fraternal feeling for his northern brother. Some question has been made as to who originated the idea of the reunion. The credit properly belongs to a member of the Highlanders who was here about a year ago when Colonel Baird and some half-dozen of his men came down to look over their old battlefields here in that Campbell station. The suggestion was taken up by a few men, and the scheme was so attractive that as soon as it was made public, everybody on every side and in every business caught at it and it was made possible. Perhaps it is not saying too much to state that one of the most enjoyable times of the whole reunion was the meeting held in the big tent yesterday afternoon. The occasion was a peace jubilee, and it was in all truth and earnestness a genuine love feast. The old soldiers who thirty years ago were engaged in shooting at each other met as brothers of a common country in related incidents of the war. The men who had seen hard service surveyed the old fort arm in arm and talked of those trying days when so many of their comrades gave their lives for the cause they espoused. There must be something about such a reunion as this has been that those who were not in the war do not understand. To see men of a hundred battles, scarred with bullets and bayonets, meet and become so filled with emotion that they can scarcely speak shows that their hearts are most powerfully touched. What a grand sight it was to see those old heroes get together and exchange words of love. The men who wore the gray were glad that there was one country, and the men who wore the blue conceding to them gallant and conscientious service. No one who was present could but feel that it was good to be there, that he was better for it. You selected some of the coverage from the front page, full front page mm -hmm. coverage of this for three days, and uh, you selected parts of that for this recording. Mm -hmm. The journalist impression uh, included a statement that this couldn't have happened anywhere else other mm -hmm. than Knoxville. It hadn't happened before mm -hmm. and, and could really only happen in this part of the country. Is that because of how Republican East Tennessee was? I think it's because the East Tennessee had really active Union and Confederate veterans groups. Uh, there were a lot of Confederate veterans in East Tennessee, but I think it was probably the fact that, that we had the two groups and that they, the city was really picking up uh, speed and growth at this point. In the 1880s, the city doubled in population. These new people had come in, and there a lot of them were northern capitalists who had been here during the war, like A.J. Albers and W.W. Woodruff, people who started new businesses and were really accepted into the community. And so we have this hybrid community of the old pre-Civil War civic fa families and leaders, and then you have these new people coming in who are bringing a lot of vitality to the city. 
and Albers, A.J. Albers, was the chair of this this Blue and Gray reunion. He was the man who took on the, the leadership role. They invited the generals who were still living. Burnside had been dead for two years when they planned this, but General Longstreet came, and he was the probably the biggest name figure who was there of the old Civil War generals, and he was a house guest, I think, of Mr. Albers, and he made made a wonderful conciliatory speech, which is what most of the speeches were. Um, when you think about what they were doing in that time, the context of that time, it was a really ambitious thing to do. To raise $10,000 by public subscription in that time was a huge amount of money. And the town was only about 22, 23,000 people, and they were looking at trying to bring to town as many as 15,000, maybe even 20,000 visitors. And so they really had to figure out, be very creative, and figure out a way logistically to bring this off, and they did it. Mm-hmm. The soldiers, the veterans who came, expected very Spartan accommodation. But still, to be able to have that many people housed and fed for three or four days in the city was a really a, a major challenge. Were they camping out in the fields? A little bit of everything. This was the inauguration of the first electric streetcar, and they actually encouraged some of the people from nearby areas to camp out at what's now Chilhowee Park and ride the streetcar into town. They had a, a committee, a hospitality committee, that canvassed the city to see who would take in boarders. And people in those days were used to sharing rooms, so that wasn't such a problem. And then there was the whole problem of feeding people. I think there may have been six hotels of any size in the city and maybe ten restaurants that were fairly decent size, so you can see that feeding this many people was just a huge challenge. And they rose to the occasion. They entertained probably something like 15,000 people for three days, and the town's population basically doubled for three days. And just the idea of the tent, I mean, they had, they had to figure out what to do, where are you going to have this stage, this big event. They explored the idea of building a great big wooden structure, temporary structure, and it was really expensive. They found a tent for sale up in Milwaukee. It was a tent that had been made for Barnum and Bailey Circus. So the uh, reunion committee bought it for $600, which is a lot of money. That sounds like a lot. Eight, and it weighed eight tons. Took two railway cars to bring it to Knoxville. Mm. But they set it up right next to where the remains of the fort were on the hilltop. So they set the big tent up over there, and and the big events were staged over there. Mm -hmm. And lots of smaller events were all over town. There was a big musical event in Staub's Opera House right in the middle of the uh, event with uh, tableaus. They loved tableaus in those days with, you know, people posed in, in costumes and fancy dress and the Crouch's Orchestra played music. It's a kind of amazing Knox, Knoxville's Opera House in 1890 was almost 20 years old. And it seated um, over a thousand people. It could hold a pretty good crowd. And they had raised extra money and had uh, 37 or 38 major displays of fireworks. And the last one was this big panel of fireworks that recreated an image of the fort with big shells going up over it, big you know fireworks going up over it, and it was the it was the bring down the house event for the for the end of the uh, of the reunion. It was a really special event, and one of the things that commemorated this event was the building of a little uh, Fort Sanders Presbyterian Church, which was stood and, and still stands at 16th Street in Laurel. The Laurel Theater? Laurel Theater, but it was the Fort Sanders Presbyterian. So that's yeah. what became the Laurel Theater. Yeah, no, it was a church building. But one of the features of that church 
was the window, the stained glass window that had the Union soldier and the Confederate soldier shaking hands. It was the symbol of the reunion. Mm -hmm. And it was actually put in the window that faced west towards Fort Sanders. But when the the church partly burned and that window was destroyed a few years ago, but it was right on the site of where the um, reunion had been held. So it's really, a, I think, a tragic loss. The, The window, the church is still there. It's still a beautiful little building, but the window's gone, which is too bad. The journalist says that some of the soldiers were also spending time finding their um, fallen comrades in the cemetery. Yes. Which cemetery was that? Uh, mainly that was the National Cemetery, and it was particularly the 79th New York, the Highlanders. They were the troops who were defending the fort when the Confederates attacked. And a number of them died uh, while they were here in Knoxville. Not very many in battle, I think mostly probably of disease, but they're buried over in the National Cemetery. And that's the one next out. next to Old Gray Cemetery, right on Broadway, not far from town. So they would have gone there, and there was um, the Confederate graves were not not so well marked, but the Confederate dead had been moved, were were being moved and had been moved to uh, the uh, Bethel Cemetery, the Confederate Cemetery, and uh, which is behind Mary Hazen House. If you're thinking trying to locate it, uh, mm-hmm. it's a street directly behind Mary Hazen House, okay. and. Um, those graves, those soldiers had been largely unmarked. So you could, in the National Cemetery, you could go to the find an actual marked stone. The Confederate Cemetery, you could go to the cemetery, but there weren't any individual markers because the bodies were moved later. And we know a lot of names. We don't know all the names of the Confederate dead. There were a lot more of them. There were a lot more of them. A lot more. The uh, New York Highlanders lost. What was it? Thirteen. Oh. Yeah, not not a, a great many people, and that that battle was a disaster for the Confederates because uh, because of the miscalculations of the leadership. They didn't realize the that there was the deep trench that they had to get through, and it turned out to be a cold and icy morning, and it was muddy, and the troops were in the just deep trench trying to get up the wall, and they were just sitting ducks for the Union defenders to shoot, and then. Once there were a lot of men in the trenches, they started. The Union soldiers started throwing, lighting artillery shells and throwing them down in the trench, which would have been like a hand grenade, and it, just, and it killed many, many soldiers who were trapped down in that uh, that muddy trench. Mm-hmm. This sort of tied in probably with the last push to save Fort Sanders as a as a military monument, and there certainly was in the 1880s and in the 90s a continuing push to try to get the land purchased where the forts, the remains of the fort were, and to save it. And, of course, that failed right after the end of the next decade. People kept, private owners kept grading away the fort and putting a street through here and a street through there, and pretty soon the fort was, there was really nothing left of it because it was all earthworks. Chickamauga, it was being preserved, Shiloh. There were really, you know, some some major battles had had national uh, parks or, or a park site being created to preserve the battlefield. And Knoxville never quite was able to bring that off, even though there were people who pushed very, very hard for it to happen. Mm-hmm. We've got our Civil War forts, who, the Union forts on the south side of the river, the remains of at least parts of the five forts that were on the hilltops on the other side of the river. And those were critical because those forts kept the Confederates from being able to shell the city. Longstreet could have put cannons up on those hills and fired directly into the city, Burnside, I don't think would have been able to hold the town. I think he would have had to pull out. So mm-hmm. holding those hilltops was really critical to holding Knoxville, which was critical to going on to Chattanooga and Atlanta. It may not have been the big battle, but it was an important link 
to the success of the Union Army in ending the war so quickly. I was amazed to read that uh, Benjamin could fire from Fort Sanders and mm. hit the, uh, what was it, Armstrong House? Yeah, he, he hit Bleak House. Bleak and, House. Yeah. And I, I was really Everybody. amazed by that, trying to imagine even being able to see the house from there until I realized, oh, there probably weren't very many trees. There, were, there were almost no trees. <laughs> and, and it was an, an enormous distance, and it was actually just a very, very lucky shot. I mean, mm. he, they tried to hit various targets, and this was just an incredibly lucky shot. And mm -hmm. I guess that's the cannonball that they still have embedded in the wall out there at Bleak House. Yeah. But, uh, so deforestation was probably not a good thing for the Confederates. No. A lucky thing for the Union soldiers. <laughs> no, almost every tree in, in the environs of every city had been cut down for firewood. But when there was an occupation army, they burned the fences, they burned old buildings, they burned every tree. It was just a desolate kind of landscape, and the post-war pictures really show that. Yes, they do. Yeah. I've been enjoying looking at some of these photos. What do you have here? Well, we have the, there are a couple of souvenirs that were promoted, and one of them is a, a painting that was done for the reunion. The artist isn't identified. It, it might have been Lloyd Branson, but it's not identified, but it was an 8-foot by 20-foot oil painting called The Battle of Fort Sanders. But this actually shows the Confederates shelling Fort Sanders. So they're up on Cherokee Bluff with their cannons trying to hit the fort, but it's too far away. So their shelling is not being at all effective. Now, if they'd been at Fort Stanley or Fort Dickerson or any of those close-in shots, they would have been able to obliterate a lot of downtown. There was a songbook, a souvenir songbook, put together by um, a man named Reddington who was a, apparently a very good singer. And he, he printed the songbook in New York, but it was for the reunion, the song souvenir of the Blue and Gray in Knoxville. And he sold a little booklet. And was, we were able to get one of those for the collection just a few years ago. And there were probably thousands of those sold. Yeah. And, they were, and they actually sang along with it. And he sang, he apparently had a very good voice, and he sang uh, some songs uh, at some of the public meetings. And the, uh, the best picture that I think gives you a sense of the event is the picture of the big tent, the eight-ton tent that was put up probably about the hilltop around 16th Street, on the top of the hill. Mm -hmm. It was a huge tent. It weighed eight tons. It was 212 feet by 262 feet and could hold an estimated 15,000 people for an event. So some of these photographs are reproduced in this book. They're in t an article in Tennessee An <coughs> Ancestors. Uh, called East Tennessee's Blue and Gray Reunion, which was published in August in the August 2005 issue. We got really interested in this as we were researching the, the storyline for the museum because this really was the first big event that Knoxville staged to sort of publicize itself as an up-and-coming town. Uh, it was 20 years later that we had our first um, expositions, the Appalachian Expositions, of 1910 and 1911 and the National Conservation Exposition of 1913. And this was sort of a dress rehearsal for those those bigger events. Mm -hmm. And Knoxville continued to grow through the 1890s, so by the, 20 years later it was, a, it was a very sizable town and it was really a town made by the railroad. Well, thank you very much, Steve. We'll look forward to getting to a link to some of these photographs in your digital collection mm -hmm. that is growing every day. Okay, very Thanks. good. Thanks. You've been listening to Historic Knoxville News, the podcast of the Knox County Public Library. The podcast archives are available from our website at knoxlib.org. That's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G. On the podcast page, you can read article transcripts and find links to library resources related to the subject. 
You can leave your comments on each episode and support the podcast by linking to it with the handy share button. Special thanks go to the Friends of the Library for their support. The music was performed by Music Therapy and our reader was Robbie Griffith. I'm Melissa Brenman. Join us again for another journey into Knoxville's past. This work is published under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States License Copyright 2008 by Knox County Public Library.